Welcome to the American Thoracic Society's Respiratory Cell and Molecular Biology Podcast. Today we will be interviewing Dr. Kara Gattardi, Associate Professor of Medicine at Northwestern Medical School. Welcome sure. to the ATS RCMB Podcast. Uh, this is Kara Gattardi. Uh, she is a Associate Professor at Northwestern in, the, in their section of pulmonary and critical care. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, and so... Why don't you start off and tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in the research that you do? Yeah. Um, well, I'm sort of a longstanding cell biologist, uh, uh, trained for my PhD through postdocs and sort of how cells stick to each other and make junctions. And I've largely focused on a cell type called epithelial cells, which are really the barrier cell type between the outside world and the inside world. Um, and most recently, I'd say in, well, in the last 10 years since I've been at Northwestern, my lab studies the Velcro that holds cells in tissues throughout the body. Uh, and it's called, we think of it as an adhesive Velcro, uh, and it's largely made up of only four proteins, but these four proteins come together and allow cells to stick to each other and effectively stitch the actin cytoskeletons of adjacent cells next to each other. And uh, why is it important to study uh, these, uh, this Velcro, the cell-cell uh, interaction in which cells are allowed to stick to each other. Right. So historically, people have been interested in adhesion for two reasons. First is that, I mean, development is absolutely dependent on it. You can't make solid tissues without these adhesive structures. And so if you knock out any one of these four proteins, generally it's pretty devastating. You can't make an organism. If you do it focally, you can't make a tissue. Um, the other reason why people have really focused on it is because it became clear through the 90s that basically the loss of adhesion was sort of a hallmark of cancer and metastasis. And so uh, cancer researchers were very interested in understanding the identity of these molecules and how they contribute to cancer. It sounds like these cell-cell adhesions, therefore, are important for lungs to develop, but also for lungs not to turn into cancer. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And... Um, where do you feel, feel like this, this field is going? What's lacking? What, what's important? Uh, how is this going to improve our understanding of lung biology and lung diseases? Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, until recently, I didn't really think that the the cell biology of adhesion that my lab works on was going to be something that I could translate into any lung diseases, um, you know, in part because the loss of adhesion is so devastating and most lung diseases start very mildly and accumulate over time and it, it's not obvious that adhesion was dysregulated. Um, and even though my lab, I should say, trying to work at it from like the reductionist approach out, my lab is very focused on how adhesion is regulated. So how is the complex modified by cell signals and post-translational modifications? And for a long time, we've been thinking adhesion's probably dysregulated in certain lung diseases. Maybe there are modifications that result in a loosening of adhesion. And these are transient, but they can contribute to disease. But it's been really hard to go from you know, phosphorylations and maybe signaling pathways out to a particular disease. Um, and so, actually, we've come back to this a little bit more interestingly by looking at following data the other way, which is in the post-genomic era, there have been a whole host of genome-wide association studies um, that seem to be implicating cell adhesion molecules as underlying contributors, or I should say the dysregulation of cell adhesion molecules as un underlying contributors to disease. 
So we've come back to this sort of, and we're coming to this from a completely different angle now. And, and so, and so, how are, how are you approaching it? Yeah, so, you know, we'd noticed, uh, we've just been paying attention to a lot of GWASs. We've, we've, you know, in the lung community, it's kind of been appreciated for some time that some diseases, like things from like asthma to fibrosis, there's an impression that maybe a sick epithelium, so the cell type that I talked about before, which is the barrier from the outside world to the inside world that runs from the large airways down to the small alveolar sacs in the lung, that that one cell type, if that cell type's not working properly, if the barrier's not working properly, it may predispose to various diseases from asthma to fibrosis. And there have been hints from some genetic studies, but we weren't really ready to jump in on it. But very recently, since about 2009, there were a cluster of GWASs that focused on one protein, a relative of a protein that we study a lot in my lab. So I'll call this protein alpha-T-catenin. It's an actin-binding protein that basically bridges the, the adhesive Velcro and links it to actin. And um, it was interesting. This protein was showing up in a lot of GWASs linked to occupational and um, steroid-resistant forms of asthma. And it was curious. Um, it was particularly curious because uh, this version of alpha-catenin is, is I should tell you, it's, a, it's an understudied version of a protein that a lot of people in the field study. So a lot of people study something called alpha-E-catenin. The E stands for epithelial expressed. And that, that, everybody's studying that version of alpha-catenin because it's so important. When you knock it out, you know, the embryo doesn't develop or a tissue falls apart. But when you're thinking about human disease, you know, you probably are looking for a gene that isn't that devastating for development. And so Alpha-T is interesting because when you knock it out, it's a totally normal animal. But what's interesting about alpha-T catenin is that it's expressed in very few cell types in the body. It's in the heart, it's in a cell type in the testis, and it's in a select number of cell types in the brain. And so that was curious. It's a curious connection of how do these three cell types get you from a, a junction protein to asthma. And so... Um, we were a little skeptical. I was skeptical. I had this very talented MD-PhD student who was, you know, intellectually and experimentally capable and fearless. And he basically, we took advantage of a, a knockout mouse that um, a colleague of mine in Belgium had developed of this particular alpha-catenin. And he basically ran it through a number of models of asthma and was able to basically kind of effectively validate these GWASs and show that this gene through a loss of function does contribute to the development of asthma. He also went on to show the student that actually, uh, you, you know, the cell type that alpha-T is expressed in, are it is a cardiac protein, but there are cardiac cells in the lung that line the pulmonary vasculature, down to the very small pulmonary veins and large pulmonary veins, which track along the airways, which is really what people think is the target organ and asthma. You know, when you have an inflamed airway, that's the big problem. And so we, what he's ended up showing is that um, the loss of alpha-T-catenin basically protects you from asthma and results in reduced inflammation in these um, bronchovascular bundles uh, in, in the mouse model. And so uh, it's really exciting because it's, um, it's kind of a validation of some genetic studies. When we first went into this, I was you know, I have to totally admit, uh, you bring a lot of, um, uh, you know, when you go into a new field, you bring the dogmas of the field to the problem, right? So everybody thinks of 
you know, asthma is a disease of smooth muscle cells and the airway proper. And I kept telling my student, you know, we really need to probably find and show that alpha-T catenins in smooth muscle cells. But once you stop trying to, we couldn't find it there, right? And we finally realized when we looked more carefully is that, oh, it's actually lining cardiac cells in the lung, which is something that, you know, as I've, as I've been told, most pulmonologists forgot if they ever knew. <laughs> and so it's now a really interesting connection of a cardiac cell junction protein maybe contributing to the inf inflammation in the bronchovascular uh, bundle region and, and contributing to asthma, which is really kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, that sounds incredibly exciting. It sounds like you took some population genetics. You found this really interesting protein, mm -hmm. uh, alpha-T-catenin. In an animal model, you showed that it was important in asthma, and then you showed that its importance is, is involves a cell type that uh, pulmonologists and, and uh, lung research have, haven't even thought about. Uh, yeah. in the pathobiology of asthma. That's really fantastic. Um, what do you, I mean, how do you feel like your your approach was different than approaches before, and why do you think that this led to the discovery of this new sort of cell type and protein um, uh, in the biology of asthma? Yeah, um, I don't know. It's kind of just, I think we're, it's dumb luck. I know a lot of people, a lot of people are very critical of uh, GWASs these days, and maybe because you know, some of the targets we've followed up and aren't giving us the, aren't explaining, you know, much of, you know, genetic contribution to disease. I, I don't know. I mean, we're, there's, it's still much, it's still early days for us, but um, I think uh, what I'm excited about is that I think we're learning about things, we're finding some surprises because I think we're a little open-minded and we're also not burdened by dogma. The other thing is I think we're learning some lessons that my colleagues that are just cell and developmental biologists might find interesting, which is that we've got like 50 labs studying this ubiquitous alpha-catenin that, you know, you know, that is important in development and probably cancer and, um, and is fundamental, but there's like three or four labs that are working on this, this variant that doesn't seem essential. And I'm, it, we sort of wonder if, well, maybe these genes that are non-essential are really the more disease-relevant genes because you can live without them. And, and diseases, a lot of diseases are things that are kind of start mild and accumulate over time. Certain cardiomyopathies are that way, you know. Uh, and so, I don't know, it's sort of an insight for us that, you know, you know my, my message to my other colleagues is many more of us need to be working on this understudied alpha-catenin rather than the one that doesn't seem to be mutated in disease as much. And so how do you think your work in alpha-T-catenin cell-cell uh, interactions or uh, your work in lung disease in general is going to uh, move forward in the future, and, and where do you think the future of asthma research or other lung disease research uh, will be? Oh, gosh. Well, please don't ask me about the future of asthma research because I, I'm so new to this disease because I really started approaching this problem as a cell biologist, you know, just trying to validate, you know, a set of, you know, interesting GWAS, uh, you know, associations. So, I don't know that I can comment on that, but I but I will just say, you know, from the standpoint of maybe a future therapy, I mean, usually when you study structural proteins, many of us don't think that you know, it's hard to restore the structure, right? It's what people tend to drug when they want to uh, come up with a therapy is maybe the consequence of the loss of the structure because then the loss of the structure gives rise to a signaling change and signaling pathways with 
enzymes are usually, you know, the more druggable kinds of targets. Um, the only thing that uh, that I'll say about the implications of finding a cardiac junction protein that's important in cardiac contractility, you know, and maybe the linkage between that and asthma is that, and I've been told this is not something that I would have come to on my own as a cell biologist, but I've been told from my pulmonary colleagues and others that there's this curious efficacy of cardiac selective beta blockers in the in the treatment of asthma and nobody ever you know it's 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 counterintuitive but it seems like that people benefit from it over the long term and so maybe the genetics and what we're working out is at some level giving us insight into why that may be uh i realize i'm sounding very vague here but it, it, uh because we there's so much we don't know but the suggestion might be that maybe people that have occupational asthma or these steroid-resistant forms of asthma, maybe a subset of them have some sort of cardiac junction defect, either in the heart proper or the pulmonary veins, and that the remedy could be um, uh, beta blockers for these people. But I say that, you know, with with the full knowledge that there's aspects of our data that are still complicated uh, and don't fully fit, and there's work to do before we could tell people to do that. My job uh, in running a lab is to do my research, but mostly to inspire people to want to carry out, you know, get interested in the things I'm interested in and make projects their own. And I have to say, most of it, to, to the extent to which I have been at all successful, it is usually because I've been able to convince someone who works for me technically to just basically get all the work done and do a great job. So I've had, you know, this. There's a mentee in uh, who uh, we had a project where we were working on the signaling function of one of these catenins in the context of fibrosis. It was an idea brought to me by a fellow who wanted to do a KO8 in my lab, and she successfully finished that, had a really nice publication in the Blue Journal as a first author and a number of reviews, and she's basically submitting her first R01 and and is taking over that line of direction. And I, you know, am really excited to watch her develop in that way. And uh, and then I have, uh, you know, this MD-PhD who I was telling you about, you know, is really the only reason this crazy cardiac junction asthma uh, project got off the ground, and he is like, you know, 95 percent responsible for the success of this project. So, um, you know, I I just want to shout out for the people that work for me because they really they they have done a great they've just done a great job uh, by these studies. And what kind of advice would you give then to uh, 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 young investigators, uh, either starting their career or, or transitioning from uh, working in a lab under someone else uh, into a their own uh, lab or research space or study? I do think it's a personal decision, you know, pick the, you know, you have to pick a mentor, someone whose style of working you, uh, you know, complements your own. And, uh, of course, I think mostly I think you want to really work on a project that you love and that uh, more than, I think a lot of times people go into a lab and they, Kind of, you have to go into a lab that has a core set of strengths and use them. But I think it's nice if you can take advantage of the core set of strengths, but take make something really your own, so you're not just doing exactly you know what your mentor's doing. I I think that's the the challenge actually. Uh, Dr. Gattardi, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. 
Tune in next time when we interview Dr. Augustine Choi, Chair of Medicine at Cornell Medical School.